some years ago, I told the story of a man by the name of Nikolai Siardrista, who is one of the world's, or was one of the world's most remarkable artists, an expert at what he does. And I don't know if you remember or not, for those of you that were here, but uh, what's so remarkable about his work is, is that he could literally put his entire life's work on the tips of your fingers. Nikolai is what is known as a micro-miniature sculptor. I don't know if you've uh, any, seen any of, of their work or not. But uh, he is a master at manipulating and controlling the minute in such a way as to create masterpieces of microscopic beauty. What has he created? Well, according to one writer, and you can look this up on the internet, he has poised gold camels inside the eye of a needle along with a pyramid and a palm tree. That's a real eye of a needle. He's inserted a flea-sized red rose. Looks like a vase, doesn't it? You know what that is? It's a hollowed-out human hair. On the flat edge of a cut human hair, he has balanced two tiny working padlocks, working, mind you, complete with keys, Nikolai has copied a 600-note musical score on the chrysanthemum leaf the size of a grain of rice. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, since I've told that story, there are others, too. Another Nikolai, but I don't know what it is with these Russian Nikolai people. They like this minute stuff. This is Nikolai Aldunin, born September 1st, 1956, a Russian artist noted for his microscopic art, uh, described as masterpieces and pioneering work. Those were his tools there. They include super glow, glue, syringes, toothpicks. His microscope dates back to 1985. And his work also includes a camel train in the eye of a needle. Of course, he had to outdo the other Nikolai by putting some more camels and more palm trees. But he's got many other works as well. And you'll see a couple of them up on the screen as Cindy's kind of flashes through them, but famous in Russia and around the world, he's motivated the creation of a museum for such miniatures in Moscow. Micro-miniature artists must overcome, as you can imagine, huge, huge obstacles. Single sneeze, cough, misdirected breath, or nervous twitch can completely annihilate months and months of intricate work. Another extreme challenge is static electricity. One artist said while I was working on the Oasis scene, the Nikolai, the first one, uh, I lost two camels because of static electricity. An electrical surge is like a giant catastrophe for these miniatures. Now to carve a chess set balanced on the head of a pin or an electric motor smaller than the belly of an ant, which they do, these artists must wear thick, thick glasses and peer through a microscope. Countless hours of careful, carefully controlled movement is involved and the work is painstaking. Look at the size of that bicycle made out of gold. How incredibly difficult it is to work with and control small things. And for the two Nikolais here, how extremely critical it is. Now, every one of us in this room, though many of us may not realize it, are faced 
with an equally critical and much more difficult responsibility in life than they are. Like these micro-miniature artists, we, in a sense, are also sculptors. Let me explain. We're artists and we're craftsmen. Every one of us. How? With our speech. With, we either craft masterpieces like this or we create havoc. And our tool, very small tool, the tongue. Small, delicate, yet extremely potent and tremendously difficult to manage. How we use it is absolutely critical for it reveals who we really are from the inside out. In addressing a group of high-profile teachers, Jesus sculpted the quintessential truth about our speech when he said, from Matthew 12, verse 34, For out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. A good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Words are very, very powerful. Very powerful. Words reveal what is really inside of us. And they are pitched forth, often uncontrollably, by one of the smallest, most untamed, unmanageable muscles in your entire body, your tongue. And once they're out, you know as well as I do, they're impossible to recover. Think about some of the words people say that can never be retrieved. I hate you. Get lost. I wish you were dead. Interesting, I was, in preparation, I was looking at some videos from some different people, and I, uh, I came across one from Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church in Seattle who was talking about a time when he was standing in the presence of a woman who was talking about her child. Her child was being a little bit crazy. And she looked down at the child and in the child's presence said, I wish I'd had an abortion. Can you imagine what that must have made that child feel like? We say things like that. I wish I'd never met you. Can't you do anything right? You're such an idiot. I never want to see you again. Probably one of the most disturbing and commonly used phrases, yet eternally devastating, you can go to hell. How many people have said that? How many people have heard that? Do you know what you're saying? Have you ever uttered words you wished you had never said before? I know the Apostle Peter did. Though all may fall away, Yet I will not. And then very shortly after that, I do not know the man you're talking about. How about the self-condemning words of the crowds? Crucify him. See, our words are very powerful. 
Advertising agencies depend on them. We persuade men and women with them. The Christian preaches, teaches, and prays with them. But we rarely are responsible with them. Words can wound. Words can heal. They can degrade or they can uplift. They can give life or they can condemn. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The fact is, controlling what we say, as well as when we say it, speaks very strongly about the reality of our faith, doesn't it? So, for some reason, God led me into this little mini-series we're going to do for the next three, four weeks about the power of words. Today we're going to look at James chapter 3. Next couple weeks after that, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. I think I'll title that sermon, Facebook and Ephesians 4. Because whatever I say to you in this series about the tongue also relates to the fingertips on a computer keyboard. So you can just assume that when I talk about the tongue, I'm talking about what you write as well. Okay? That'll empty the church. (laughs) You see, because words wield power, don't they? Huge power. Believers must control their speech, and taming the tyrannical tongue is no easy chore. It has, it seems, a mind of its own. It doesn't, however. Mastering it, though, is no easy task. It is a matter of self-control, and self-control is a matter of spiritual maturity because it is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control. It happens when people submit themselves to the Spirit's lordship. And that's a term that we hear very infrequently, if not at all. The Bible has a lot to say about what we say. In Proverbs alone, the term tongue, mouth, lips, and words are mentioned almost 150 times. That's an average of about five times per chapter. Okay? The book of James refers to the use of our tongue in every single chapter in the book, but in chapter 3, he really places it under the microscope and becomes a micro-miniature sculptor of sorts. As a, as a micro-miniature artist, the Lord's half-brother crafts a three-dimensional view of our need to reverse this tyrannical reign of the tongue over us. Through the critical lens of Scripture, James chapter 3 gives us one of the most comprehensive teachings on the subject of the tongue and the power of words in all of Scripture. His overwhelming message can be pared down to three simple words. You can write them in the margin of your Bible. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Why? Simply because an uncontrolled tongue reveals an immature faith. An uncontrolled tongue reveals an immature faith. And I'm going to convince you of that over the next couple, three, four weeks. Standing between the contrasting themes here in James, I'd like you to turn to James if you would, but standing between the contrasting themes of a working faith in James chapter 2 and a worldly faith at the end of James chapter 3, right smack in between that is the tongue. It's the great unveiler, to coin a term. And by the way, how's your tongue? 
You need a little speech therapy? James will give it to you. And he'll give it to me too. So I'd like you to turn to James chapter 3. And um, I'm going to have Levi Hawkins read that to us this morning as a matter of introduction into this word we're going to be looking more closely at. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness. We all make many mistakes, but those who control their tongues can also control themselves in every other way. You can, we can make a large horse turn around and go wherever you want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a tiny rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot wants it to go, even though the winds are strong. So also the tongue is a small thing, but what enormous damage it can do. A tiny spark can set a great forest fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life. It can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction, where it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it breaks out into curses against those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does the spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Can you pick olives from a fig tree or figs from a grapevine? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty pool. Great job with a great word. So if an uncontrolled tongue reveals an immature faith, what does an immature faith look like? Well, James seems to indicate here that an immature faith is exposed by spiritual irresponsibility, first and foremost. Look at verse 1. And... uh, Levi read from the New Living Translation. I I, uh, chose that one for him to read because it was much more colorful and and more common. But we're looking at the New American Standard Bible. And the verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Because our words are such powerful gifts from God, James warns us of their use and who wields the power of words more than a teacher, right? I would just as soon avoid this section of the Bible, personally. (laughs) Certainly don't really want to stand here and put my head or tongue on the chopping block. But whenever I encounter this verse, I literally shudder. And I'm not just saying that. Truly, this happens inside of me because what is James exactly saying? Is he trying to discourage anyone from becoming a teacher? The term teacher here in this context is used in the sense of rabbi, referring to avid students of the scriptures who draw out their spiritual and practical application to life and who also shoulder the responsibility of teaching what they have learned to others. 
Paul mentions teachers right alongside of apostles and prophets in the important matter of explaining the faith to others, as well as providing the exposition of the Old Testament, when Paul writes about it. This office of the teacher was considered by the Jews to be a prominent position. Nicodemus, for example, if you read about him in John chapter 3, was esteemed as, John 3.10 says, the teacher in Israel or of Israel meaning that he was a master teacher, well-respected, prominent in his field. His high level of mastery of the scriptures was well-known. He was the teacher of Israel. The synagogues in Jesus' day were conducted as sort of an open discussion, not like what we do here necessarily, but a person who desired to do so was invited to teach in fact, the early church had a similar practice. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you'll find that to be true. The position of teacher was a much more sought-after position than learner. Now, it's not a bad thing to want to be a teacher. In fact, the writer of Hebrews actually encourages all believers to move toward being teachers, seeing it as an indication of one's spiritual maturity. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14 says this, You have been Christians a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need somebody to teach you the basic things again. A beginner must learn about the scriptures. You're like babies who drink only milk, cannot eat solid food. And a person who is living on milk isn't very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about doing what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who have trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong, and then to do what is right. Now you may be thinking, well, this sermon is not going to have much relevance to me because I'm not a teacher, nor have I any desire to, to be a teacher. In fact, if I ever had any, this verse just killed it. <laughs> so this doesn't really apply to me. Well, the truth of the matter is, Every single Christian is to be a teacher of sorts. Reread Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, also known as the Great Commission. As a follower of Christ, you and I have been commissioned to make disciples, but not just to make disciples, but to teach. That's part of making disciples. To teach those disciples to obey all that Christ has commanded us to observe. 1 Peter 3. Verse 15 says that you and I are to be ready at all times to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account of the hope that is within us, assuming the role of a teacher. Okay? Colossians 3.16 says that we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly within us with all wisdom, what? Teaching and admonishing one another. If you have children, you are bound by the scriptures to teach. To teach your children in the ways of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 are very, very, very strong on this. Amen? And by the way, this is an extremely high and responsible call to teach children. Isn't it? And I appreciate those, I want to just go on record right now, as saying that I appreciate those who are diligently doing this, not only at home with their own kids, but also with all of your kids in the Sunday school program. And I think some of you 
I really do. I think some of you are being called to this ministry. I absolutely do. But for whatever reason, you're not rising to the challenge. Why is that? Why not? Why not? God strengthens us and gives us to teach. Too often, though, we teach children the wrong things because we can't control our tongues, right? And children, you know as well as I do, are like mirrors. They reflect everything that they see at home and that they hear. All of our adult attitudes, they reflect back. Ever have your kids embarrass you in the wrong place at the wrong time by repeating something you said? You know, like the kid that came home from going to the grocery store with his dad and told his mother, you know what, we passed two idiots, three morons, four fools, and I don't know how many airheads. And that's true, isn't it? They pick it right up. In a real sense, very real sense, you are a teacher whether you realize it or not, whether you want the position or not. If you're a parent, you're a teacher. It is a position that must be approached with an attitude of humility. But when James says here, let not many of you become teachers, he was addressing a whole different aspect of this issue. The problem that James was attacking here was the immature attitude of wanting the authoritative position of a teacher, but not the responsibility that accompanies it. That's what he's getting at. And there are some people who just want to be in the seat of authority to teach, but they want nothing at all to do with the responsibilities that go along with it to make sure that you're dividing accurately the word of truth into living the godly life that goes along with that. They want prominence and power, but they're not willing to be held accountable. Paul warned Timothy about this danger in 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you're following along. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Think this happens today? All the time. In the apocryphal book called The Ascension of Isaiah the Prophet, believed to have been composed near the apostolic age, it's written, quote, In those days, the days of the Messiah, shall many be attached to the office, destitute of wisdom, multitudes of iniquitous elders and pastors, injurious to their flocks, and addicted to the forcible seizure of other property and plunder. Nor shall the holy pastors themselves diligently discharge their duty. This sounds like it could have been written in this month's issue of Christianity Today, not necessarily something in the apostolic age. I opened up the new issue of Christianity Today last week, and I found this article. It just jumped right out at me. A little short article entitled, Magic Words. Churches Confront Fake Pastors, it says. Denominations in Ghana are under pressure to tighten their ranks against the crop of pastors with dubious credentials, many of whom mix Christianity with all kinds of weird practices. People with ulterior motives are entering the ministry as a way to get rich quickly. And religious freedom protects 
protections prevent church leadership from stopping these pastors unless their activities are proven to be criminal. Some pastors consult the dead in their television broadcasts. Others charge consultation fees of, let's say, $35 or more in a country where a minimum wage is about $2 a day. As I was growing up, Someone, once, someone said in this article, quote, I was made to understand that consulting the dead was sorcery. She worships at a Methodist church in the Cape Coast. Now it's being practiced in the church. There's hope, though. One of the Anglican seminaries in Cape Coast said student priests are carefully monitored. Anyone who falls short of the character of a priest is dismissed. We aim at not only producing pastors, but pastors worthy of the call, she said. Many Ghanaians still come to these dubious churches seeking solutions to problems of unemployment, marriage, and childlessness. And one of these people, Kwidu Adu, a second-hand shoe seller in Cape Coast, said he does not care whether these pastors, where they get their powers from, if only he can solve my problem, I am ready to be part of that church. This is what we're up against. This is what James was warning about when he wrote this book, and we still have the problem today. And it's not just in Ghana either. James is identifying people who have strong opinions and want to propagate them, people who assume the role of a teacher and the glory that goes along with it, yet having no qualifications except for a hyperactive tongue and a lust for power. This was also the sin of the Pharisees that Jesus attacked in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 Verse 1, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Okay? But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers." Jesus isn't condemning the use here, by the way, of the title rabbi or teacher as a title. What he condemns is the attitude of pretense and pride, which, as John MacArthur says, accords undue spiritual authority to a human being as if he were the source of truth rather than God being the source of truth. James is saying, don't be so quick to assume the position of a teacher because of its perceived prominence. Before you do assume that role, you better be willing to shoulder the responsibilities involved. And one of those is recognizing that as teachers, we shall be under a stricter judgment. High degree of accountability. And the principle is simply this. Increased recognition means increased responsibility. And the word greater here is the word megas. In the original language, it means greater by comparison. 
teachers of God's revealed truth are automatically subject to greater scrutiny because of their clear knowledge of what God is saying in the word through their study, the mega buck stops here. I don't want it, but I'm accountable to you. That's the way it is when you're called to be a teacher. It's not fair, but it's fact. And notice that James includes himself in this whole statement. In James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, we will incur a stricter judgment. So he knew even as he was writing this that he was placed under accountability. Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask the more. I think that if more so-called teachers and preachers understood the incredible thrust of this truth today or actually believed it, there would be a whole lot less self-proclaimed prophets and people who supposedly speak for God. Right? They would be a lot more careful about their calling to the ministry of teaching. Now, before I went into the ministry, this wise old man, had to be in his 80s, once gave me this advice years and years and years ago. And I have since read that Spurgeon gave the same advice to his students. This was the advice. Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. Great advice. I would give that same counsel to anybody who would ask me. Now you might say, what? What are you talking about? Let me, let me explain. No one should enter into the ministry of teaching God's word if there is anything else in this life that they feel called to do. Why? Because the biblical office of teacher is by divine calling and appointment not, not, not a matter of human ambition. It's not a job you look at and say, oh, I think I'd like to be a preacher. I think I'd like to be a pastor. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. It's Jesus who gave and gives to the church teachers and pastors and prophets and evangelists. It's not a career move. The only reason anyone should assume the role of a spiritual teacher is because God has given him no other choice. You got no choice, buddy. You're in, and your life's going to be miserable until you obey. I know that from experience. See, you need to be compelled to do it, regardless of how you feel about it. Someone has said, avoid entering the Christian ministry of preaching and teaching. The standard of righteousness is one that few can hope to approach and none can hope to reach. So this is not self-serving, because I agree with that statement. Few can approach it, none can reach it, and I'm certainly one of those that haven't reached it. I didn't realize, really choose to be a pastor te- teacher. In high school, I was petrified to speak in front of people. A lot of you know that. Even in my classes that only had 10 students in them, I would not even comment or enter into dis- discussion. I was, a, I was a follower, not a leader. To some extent, I still am. But when I gave my heart to Christ... I told him, I will do anything you want me to do. Fine print. Don't ask me to preach. God's sense of humor is a whole lot better than mine. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me and what I'm about to say to you. Even now, even now, there are times when I feel that if there was a faint hint that God would have me do anything else, I would do it in a second. But I can't. Because it's not my choice. I can relate to the words of Paul and Jeremiah. 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Romans 1, Paul says, I'm under obligation. I'm eager. I'm not ashamed to do it. In Jeremiah chapter 20, I love this verse, chapter 20, verse 9, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. You know, I'm not as passionate as Jeremiah was necessarily, but I know that if I'm out of the pulpit for a week, I miss it badly. Thank goodness we have small group Bible studies and counseling appointments in other areas that I can, I can preach because if I went too long without doing it, I know my life would be miserable. You feel like that? About the thing that you're doing for Christ? You should. I love to teach. Do you love to do what God's called you to do? But I'll tell you, no matter what it is you do, and I know it's true for teaching, James just said it, is that the responsibility of accurately dividing the word of truth and handling eternal concepts carries more stress than any, anyone can handle on their own. You need the Holy Spirit. Jesus can handle that stress. And that's what keeps me sane. It's a demanding work. It requires hours of study and quite often some pretty unpopular decisions. Trust me on that one. But I can't, nor do I want to do anything else. Ask any teacher convinced of his or her calling, and they will tell you the same thing. Henry, is that right? Amen. You want to do anything else? Right now? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no. No, truly. Ask anybody that's, that has any kind of role of teacher that are doing it because God's compelled them to do it, and they'll say the same thing. Sunday school teachers, Lisa, you were just saying that last week. I just love those kids. I love teaching those kids. I don't, and she's in this service today, but I know in her heart she's just dying to be out there. Especially after listening to all this, right? (laughs) But you know, there are plenty of people out there assuming the role of teacher, pastor, teacher, Christian counselor, etc., etc., who don't give a rip about the accuracy of Scripture. They don't care about teaching the truth of what God's word says. All they want is a platform for their own brand of self-formulated pseudo-spiritual opinion. And that's why James warns about the seriousness of this responsibility. At this point, you're, you're probably asking yourself again this question. How in the world does this apply to me? Apart from the fact that, as I said before, all of us are teachers of a sort, I believe there is another application for everyone, more personal and subtle, of this exhortation of James. Let me ask you a few questions. How many people today come to church and quietly assume the role of a teacher? You know what I'm talking about? 
quietly assume the role of a self-ordained teacher. In other words, they hear the teaching, they leave, they proceed at that point to completely tear apart the message, always applying it to somebody else, never applying it to their own hearts. Placing themselves above it all. Oh, so-and-so needs to hear that. How often do people attend a conference or a service or a counseling session without a teachable spirit? They don't come to lecture, but neither do they come to learn. They come to analyze and they come to criticize and they come to do anything and everything but what the teacher says. No matter who that teacher is. Now hear me out, I'm not trying to refer to genuine questions of concern. Everybody has to have those. Those are healthy for both the learner and the teacher. In fact, a good teacher must be teachable. That's part of the whole deal. You've got to be able to learn in order to teach. But how often do we come to either put our stamp of approval upon or disapprove of what is taught? And not to learn. You've done it. I've done it. I believe James would say it is the mark of an immature faith. It lacks responsibility. The same thing is true when we enter into discussion about any number of controversial subjects today. People assume the role of teacher and make the scriptures say whatever they want them to say. As Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See it all the time. All the time. Right now, as a matter of fact, a pastor by the name of Rob Bell is under huge scrutiny and controversy because of a book that he wrote called Love Wins, where it seems that he's advocating universalism, that everybody goes to heaven in the end, nobody ever goes to hell. This guy is under some major, major scrutiny right now. And... I'm not going to comment on that yet because I haven't read the book. I'm probably a good two chapters or so into it. And my hair's standing on end. I want to read the whole thing, but boy, oh boy, you have to be careful. And when you have the amount of notoriety that a person like this guy has, or any, any nationally known teacher or internationally known teacher, and you start saying things that smack of heresy... My goodness, where's the fear of God? I'm not saying he doesn't fear God. I'm just saying, boy, when you make statements that are so controversial, I think you you, you owe people a responsibility to explain them. If we're going to attempt to teach God's word, we had better be responsible enough to teach what it says, not what we think it ought to say. And that goes for every single one of us in this church, not just me and the deacons or the other pastors. That goes for you too. When you're talking with your friends, when you're typing things on Facebook, whatever it is, be responsible enough to teach what it says and take the time to learn what it says. James says we're under intense accountability. Hebrews 4.13 indicates that there will be a day of reckoning which no one will escape. And it comes right after The writer of Hebrews talks about the word of God being active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide the soul and spirit in both joints and marrow, right down to the soul. And then he talks about this day of reckoning. It's no uh, coincidence that those two things are juxtapositioned with each other. 
an uncontrolled tongue or our uncontrolled words are a sign of an immature faith and an immaturity in the faith is revealed by a blatant lack of responsibility. Secondly, James says in verse 2 here, an immature faith is also exposed by verbal unrestraint. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Plato once quipped, wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools, because they have to say something. We've all probably been in that position, right? I know I have. This is a constant battle. I moved from being somebody that didn't like to talk much to somebody that can't seem to shut his mouth in any given conversation. Years ago, I was going through this checkout at a local supermarket, and I noticed one of the most incredible sights I'd ever seen on the front of one of the tabloids. It horrified me. You probably remember this, but it's the epitome of what James is talking about here. The headline read, quote, Man with two tongues speaks two languages at the same time. You can guess what tabloid that was in, right? And yes, there was a photograph. Scary. I mean, I have enough trouble trying to control the one tongue that I have, never mind two. James not only warns us about being responsible with our words, but he gives us the reason why. Because we all stumble, he says. And this is a statement of our universal failure in this. James is beginning to take the focus off of teachers now and refocuses it where he really intends to put it, and that is on the everyday man or woman. So from this point on, you're really going to feel the relevance of it in the next few weeks. The emphasis here is on the word all in this verse. We all stumble in many ways. We all sin in this area. We stagger and trip over our words and say things we really regret. regret. And the word literally means to trip up. That's what the word stumble means. Just what it says, to trip up. The picture is of a foot striking an obstacle so as to cause one to trip. Not as a fatal fall, mind you, but enough to hinder one's progress severely. In chapter 2, verse 10, James uses this word again. There, it refers to a moral collapse. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tripped over your tongue? I know you have. I do it all the time. I have the distinct ability to completely ruin an otherwise perfect day through one thoughtless word. Just one. One. Right? You ask my wife. She'll tell you. No, on the other hand, maybe you shouldn't ask my wife. Nothing portrays this concept more graphically than the image that comes to mind when I hear the name Mary Decker. I don't know if you remember Mary Decker. There's going to be a video playing behind me as I talk about this, but her tragic fall at the 1984 Olympic finals is indelibly etched in many of our minds. An expert in her field with a history of world records and glowing reviews. Mary tripped and she fell onto the infield during her, uh, injuring her hip as she collided with the South African native Zola Budd running for Great Britain. And you're about to see where she trips and falls. They kind of froze it here in the video. And she goes down. Here's the image. Remember that image if you saw it? And then there were more images. Mary Decker in tears, crumpled on the side of the track, 
her chance for a gold medal down the drain. Down the drain. A hero to many, Decker, however, became an instant villain after this by berating with her tongue Zola Bud afterwards, who herself was in tears, realizing that she had vanquished the medal chance for her idol, Mary Decker. And when the world thought that she would win the gold, she stumbled, not fatally, mind you, but enough to hinder her progress severely. And that's what we all remember, isn't it? That's the only thing we remember about this woman. We don't recall the countless races she won after that fall, which were many. We've forgotten about the world records that she set years later. The fact that she stumbled and fell has virtually eclipsed everything else in her running career. Now let me ask you a question. What's going to trip you up? What's going to trip me up? I'll tell you what will, if we're not careful, our tongue. And the words that we say or write or speak, or that's what's going to trip us up. That's the obstacle. James says we're continually tripping in many ways, and I would bet that the largest percentage is in the words that proceed out of our mouths. It is a grave danger, and many in the Bible recognized it. Job recognized it. Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Moses, Psalm 106, By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. Isaiah, remember Isaiah when he got in the presence of God? What did he say? There's no hope for me. I'm doomed because every word that passes from my lips is sinful. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. The greater context here of James chapter 3 tells us that the tongue is a menace to every single person's life, even more so for the teacher because his tongue is his chief tool. Like Mary Decker, we constantly face this challenge, this danger of being remembered for our slip-ups rather than our victories. And we have people in the news today that that are violating this left and right because now the taboos against foul language, they're all erased. Our politicians are dropping F-bombs on TV news. They don't even apologize for it. They don't even care. Men, women, it doesn't matter. No restraint. And the ability to control our tongue is extremely vital. It's a barometer of Christian character. It's proof that we're growing, whether or not we're growing in the faith. How many times a day do you sin with your mouth? How many times? Or me. There are a lot more ways to sin with your words than breaking the third commandment, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain. There's a lot more ways than that. Writer of Proverbs put it like this, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Proverbs 10, 19. This remarkable statement, says John Ortberg, says there is a direct correlation between the number of words you and I say and the number of sins that we commit. Right? Directly proportional. It also means that one of the simplest ways to cut down on sin is to stop talking so much. Right? 
Bill Hybels wrote in uh, Making Life Work that it is as if the writer of this proverb is saying that we can calculate the relationship between words and sin. So let's try it. Let's generate a sin prediction index, okay, before we close. Assume for the sake of argument that we speak an average of 10,000 words per day. Okay? How many sins would that involve? It's a little hard to calculate, but here's a start. William Backus cites research that indicates the average person in our society lies 200 times a day. Believe that? Average person in society lies 200 times a day. And lying is just one form of verbal sin. Just one form, mind you. Add gossip, slander, anger, bragging, insults, flattery, unkept promises, impression management, and it all starts to pile up, right? So let's estimate the sin quotient at a thousand times per day, let's say, okay? That would yield a ratio of 10 words for every sin. If you could cut the amount of talking you do in half, you'd bring the sin factor down to 500, okay? If you can get the word total down to 10 a day, you would be down to one sin. One sin. And of course, if you could get it to nine or less, you'd be a saint. Obviously, the goal of life is not to produce people who avoid sinning by staying mute all day long. But before you write off this proverb, he says, altogether, you should know that some wise people in the early church known as the Desert Fathers strongly recommended this practice of silence as a spiritual discipline. And I used to do that more often than I do now. I wonder why I'm getting myself into trouble so much lately. The number one reason they gave is that it is hard work to talk without sinning. Henry Nowen tells us, tells how when Abba Arsenius, a wealthy Roman senator who abandoned his social prominence to become a monk, prayed, quote, Lord, lead me into the way of salvation. And he heard a voice saying back to him, be silent. When we practice the proverb, Proverb 10, 19, we begin to learn amazing things. We can live without getting the last word in a conversation, Right? We can live without trying to make sure we control how other people are thinking about us by crafting our image. We can live without winning every single argument, without powering up over every decision that's made, without always drawing attention to me or to ourselves. And one last observation here. Use wisdom Use wisdom in in using silence, okay? Use wisdom in it. If you're a husband arriving home from work and your wife wants to connect soul to soul with you and talk, ask how your day went, you might not want to say when words are many, sin is not absent. (laughs) Probably don't want to say that. If the wife is wife, she may reply with Proverbs 25.11, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Which means, in wife talk, start talking, buddy, or I'm going to go buy jewelry. (laughs) When we stop talking, we also have the opportunity to engage, though, in the most important intimacy-building skill in the world. And you know what that is? Listening. Listening. 
And I want to challenge you too on another, on another front altogether is that we need to start, start employing this in our prayer life. Because we do all the talking. How much do we listen to God? Are we making space in our lives for listening? The New Testament writer James says it in one of the most often violated commands in all of Scripture that everyone should be Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Whenever you open your mouth, James says, you need to have it under control. Otherwise, you become an obstacle for spiritual progress, not only for yourself, but others as well. Proverbs 13.3 again, be careful what you say. Protect your life. A careless talker destroys himself. And then in 21, verse 23, he who guards his mouth and tongue guards his soul from troubles. If you can control your tongue, you will be able to exhibit self-control in just about everything else because the tongue's the hardest to control. You'll be perfect, James says here in verse 2, at meaning mature and fully developed. It doesn't mean like sinless, although we just saw how cutting your speech down and your talking can really reduce the amount of times you sin, at least verbally, but word, the word perfect here doesn't refer to sinlessness. There's only one man who ever accomplished that, right? Jesus, who committed no sin. Interesting how this plays out, this verse. Nor any deceit was found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to one who judges righteously. Even Jesus, when he underwent the most horrendous treatment and torture ever given to man, did not speak much. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. And that's our pattern. Controlled tongue is a barometer of spiritual maturity. You show me somebody who can't help running at the mouth and I'll show you a spiritual babe in Christ. You ever heard the axiom, it's better to be silent and be considered a fool than to speak and remove every shadow of doubt? Right? It's biblical. That is biblical. It's found in Proverbs 17, verse 28, which says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Biblical. And we all know those people who don't say much, but when they do say something, my goodness, it is right on the mark. You know people like that? Is that what others say about you? I want that to be what they say about me, but I know it's not. I need to work on that. Because a person who can control his mouth can control his entire body, James says, his life, his actions. Blessed are they, wrote wrote Russell Lowell, James Russell Lowell, blessed are they who have nothing to say and cannot be persuaded to say it. It's a good beatitude. James isn't advocating that we remain completely mute. He's simply coaching us to be wise in what we say. Why? Because an unbridled tongue is evidence of an unbridled heart. And by the way, anything that I've said today regarding words that spill from our tongues, again, I want to say, apply to the words that are splashed on the screen. And we're going to talk more about that, as I said. And I'm going to challenge you for something, too. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a challenge next week that I hope everybody rises to and takes on. But I'll leave that for next week. I want you to come back, see? 
I know how to use my words. <laughs> you know, so many believers stake their Christian maturity on the fact that they don't gamble, they don't drink, they don't go to R-rated movies, they don't dance, they don't smoke, blah, 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 blah. Yet these same people trash each other with their words two seconds after they get out of the other person's company. Gossip, lies, verbal tirades. They slay each other with character assassinations. You tell me, what's the difference? What's the difference? Jesus talked about the fact that if you call somebody a fool, it's, it's a sin. You don't have to murder somebody. You character assassinate them. And it's just as much a violation of God's will. Not the same intensity of the sin, but it is sin nonetheless. Jesus said it's what proceeds out of the man that defiles him because it reveals the nature of the heart within in the heat of the moment. Reflects our nature as sinful people in need of grace. Let me close with this statement. Socrates once said, well, two statements. Speak, friend, that I may see thee. That's true, isn't it? That's a profound thought because it's by our speech that the heart is unveiled. Years and years ago, when fountain pens were still in vogue, a well-known brand of fountain pen came with these instructions. You used to be able to buy them in boxes, and they would come with instructions on how to use them. Some of the more expensive ones do now. But here are the instructions. Quote, when the pen runs too freely, it is a sign that it is nearly empty. Need I say more? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you gave us the gift of speech and you have sanctified our tongues when you sanctified us body, soul, and spirit by salvation. I pray as people of faith, as people who believe in the Lordship of Christ, that we would take what we hear, we've heard today and apply it to our lives and let your Holy Spirit apply it to our lives in the way that you deem necessary. And make us, help us to make the changes that we need to make. Help me, my Father, to make the changes I need to make so that we may be better communicators of the truth and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, which we say that possesses us as his children. I pray it for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of those who need to hear the gospel and learn of Jesus' love. And in Jesus' name, amen.